0: It's the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have part nine of our series on the Gospel of John. Today, we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage to modern Christians. It contains John 3.16. The title of this message is, For God So Loved the World. Just a quick update on some things we got going on this week. Coming up on Tuesday night, we have part two of our class on how to read the Bible for all it's worth. And then on Wednesday night, we're going to be doing a baptism class in preparation for a baptism service we're going to have this Sunday afternoon coming up. So looking forward to baptizing some people in a hot tub. (laughs) Anyway, let's go ahead and head over to the talk. Thanks for listening to North Shore Vineyard. Check us out on the web at northshorevineyard.org.
1: if you're If you're new here today we've been in a series on the Gospel of John for the past few months and now we come to part nine and uh, today as 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 a preacher I'm a preacher a teacher uh, I guess it just depends on the day uh, as one who teaches the Bible this is kind of a scary passage today uh, because it's a well known passage I actually google imaged I searched Google image for what would come up on John 3.16? And how, how many want to guess what came up as one of the biggest results? Tim, oh. Tim Tebow, yeah. <laughs> uh, Tim Tebow came up on the image results, uh, you know, probably a third to half of uh, the time, and you know, with his uh, m- football player makeup and John 3.16 on there. Uh, but John 3.16 is one of these kind of iconic verses in Christianity, probably the most famous uh, single verse in the New Testament in at least in modern history. People who don't go to church have heard John 3.16. Most Christians can quote John 3.16. Why do we like that one? Because it kind of sums up the, the ministry of Jesus in kind of a soundbite. We like soundbites, don't we? You know, it, it, How can we communicate Jesus in a way that can fit like on a bumper sticker or uh, a Starbucks cup or something like that? And what's an easy way to communicate what he did? Well, John 3.16 is where a lot of people like to go because it kind of gives you some of the basics. But the only problem with John three sixteen, is that we've majored on it so much by taking it out of the context. And so while much of what we believe is encapsulated in that verse, I'm going to show you today that John three sixteen is actually a much bigger thing than we've made it. And perhaps there's some baggage that we've attached to it as well that we can uh, give to Jesus this morning. You know this this last week if if you came to our how to read the Bible for all it's worth class. It's a very clunky name for a class, but uh, uh, we need a marketer here. Uh, do you need anything? Oh, I just saw you looking out the door. I didn't know if I was in trouble. Um, <laughs> I am now. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this last Tuesday night, we started our class on how to read the Bible for all it's worth. And what we did in that class, most of the class was just an exercise in reading the Bible. Now, it was, it was kind of like herding cats because I told people, I don't want to know what you think about the Bible. We're just going to look at these verses and draw out whatever the main ideas are. We're not trying to study it. We're just, we're just saying, what words do we see popping up a lot in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3? And so we'd have a discussion after we talked about, after I read each chapter, and we'd all discuss, and I'd write up on a aboard how many, you know, what themes kind of emerged. What we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is the themes that emerge is, is this contrast between God's wisdom and the wisdom of the world. We also see Paul mentioning one of the big problems of the Corinthian church was disunity, d- division. There was arrogance and pride. And what Paul, Paul begins to, to form the case right there at the beginning, that the wisdom of the world is very divisive. But the wisdom of God is is a, a totally different thing. And oftentimes, the wisdom of God looks weak, doesn't it? I mean, look at Jesus hanging on a cross. That looks like utter failure. But Paul makes this statement. He says, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. But the foolishness of God is wiser than all the wisdom in the world. What may seem foolish is really God's wisdom. And, and we notice that as the themes that were emerging, and, and so Paul kind of begins to address some of the situations there in Corinth. He says, "Well, you know, the, one of the problems is you got all this division in the church, and I, I'm, I'm sure glad we've overcome that in the modern church. But try to imagine, <laughs> try to imagine groups of people who would gather around certain teachers and certain denominations. I know it's it's a stretch, but let's try to think about that. Uh, there was a group of people that were following Paul. We're in the Paul camp because." Paul had the divine revelation on the back of a horse going to Damascus. And then some people are like, forget Paul. We're, we're, we're classic here. We're, we're followers of Peter. He's the rock. You know, he's, He was with Jesus. That's the church that Jesus built, right? And then, uh, then there's those who say, forget about Paul or, or, or Peter. We're following Apollos. I mean, have you heard the way Apollos preaches, man? This guy can preach it down. He's where it's at. I mean, Paul can't even talk very good. Apollos, man, that's our guy. Well, the problem was they were getting in their little schisms and cliques and then they were kind of defining themselves against one another. So we see that denominationalism and all that division stuff, it wasn't a new phenomenon. It was happening all the way back in the early church. I'm going somewhere with this. Then Paul, what, what we also noticed, we picked up. 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, 12, and 13, just to see what's going on there. Guess what? Paul's still talking about the same things, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And Paul begins to, to really get on to the church of Corinth because this division and stuff, it's not just about teachers. Now it's, it's about the Lord's Supper. So in Corinth, you had people showing up who... Would show up to take communion together, and, and the rich people would show up early and they 'd eat all the food and drink all the wine and so when the poor people showed up there 's people who are full and drunk and <laughs> and, and paul 's like that 's the wisdom of the world. you show up and you eat all you can and you get full, and oh, that was great communion." <laughs> That's the wisdom of the world. That's not the wisdom of God. Paul then moves to the area of spiritual gifts. He said, some of you, you're walking around all cocky. i got the gift of speaking in tongues. and Oh, i got the gift of prophecy. I've got the gift of healing. I've got the gift of faith. Paul sees the same thing going on. And so how does he wrap up his whole argument? With a chapter that's very familiar if you've been to weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Now, it's one thing to... to To be inspired by the love chapter, although the love chapter is kind of inspiring, kind of not, because you kind of look at your own life and realize, okay, (laughs) I'm not very good at this love stuff. But Paul, this is the centerpiece of his argument of, of the Corinthian church. You want to know what the wisdom of God looks like? It looks like this, though I speak with the tongues of angels, but I have not love. I'm just making noise. Though I have the gift of faith, the gift of prophecy, if I give all my goods to the poor, if I go to the stake to be burned, but have not love, dude, I've, I've, I've wasted my life. Love is patient. Love is kind. It bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, that's pretty inspiring by itself, but do you realize it's not just some abstract inspirational passage. Paul was actually tying this into very concrete issues in the church. Get rid of your division. Get rid of your pride. Get rid of all these things that divide you and start loving one another and serving one another and, and walking in humility. Now, that, that whole intro there is to tell us something about context. That was the point of our thing the other night, reading scriptures in context. And so today, we're going to read John 3.16 in context to find out, okay, is there more to it than than what we have uh, learned of it? So, uh. A little word on Nicodemus real quick. Mike Manifold spoke last week, and he did a great job. I, we, we listened to his uh, message when I was putting it on the podcast uh, the other night, sitting around the fire pit in the backyard. And uh, Mike talked about this conversation that happened with Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was in the inner circle of the Pharisees, so he's one of the leaders of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were this group that They looked around at Israel and Rome and all that was going on, and they they thought, you know, everything's a mess. Maybe the problem is, maybe God hasn't sent the Messiah because we're not following the rules enough. And so the Pharisees started following the rules like nobody's business. In fact, they weren't even happy with the few hundred rules in the Old Testament. They added a couple hundred more. So they had rules for everything. And their thought was, if we can become holy enough, pure enough, blameless enough, then God's going to send the Messiah and set things right. And so that's Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, as we found out last week, goes to speak to Jesus. When does he go? At night, when nobody's looking. Because if Nicodemus is found out talking to Jesus, man, he's going to get on the Pharisee blacklist. So he kind of sneaks out and talks to Jesus. And that's where we pick up the conversation today. So in John 3, starting in verse 10, You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear of their deeds, will, their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth come to the light so that they may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, in answering, communicating to, to Nicodemus why Jesus is here, he says something very strange. Just as... Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. We have any snake lovers in here? No. Today's snake handling Sunday at North Shore Vineyard. <laughs> 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 Bring out the snakes! Uh, no. Some of you are like, I knew it. I knew that they, I knew if I hung around long enough. <laughs> we actually, Judy LeBlanc. Uh, she was raised in Appalachia. She actually went to a church one time. I think she said that uh, she got to see that. Uh, You know, this is a weird passage. I kind of think the reason why a lot of people have stuck to John 3.16 is because if you go a couple of verses early, it's, it's just strange, like a snake on a pole in the wilderness, and so Jesus needs to be lifted up. What is Jesus saying here? You know, I'm not a big fan of snakes. I grew up out in Midland, Texas, and we often, when we lived out in the country, would run across rattlesnakes. You know, we'd kill them all the time. Our dogs would come up with their necks swollen because they got a little too close to them. And uh, there was one particular uh, Christmas where my cousins and my uncle and aunt, they came in from uh, Georgia to visit with us. And, and this week, there had been like two weeks of, uh, of very, you know, low temperatures, cold snap. You know, temperatures have been in the low 20s upper teens. And then all of a sudden we got one of these days where it warmed up a little bit. So me and my cousins decided we we're going to hike out to this old lake bed because you don't have lakes in Texas, uh, naturally at least. And, uh, so we decided to hike out there and my dad kind of yells out, Hey, look out for snakes. And it, it was, it was a joke because you don't typically see snakes when it's that cold, but we walked, hiked out to this lake bed. And sure enough, when we get out there, we see this five and a half foot long diamondback rattlesnake. And so we did what we always do when we came across a rattlesnake. We killed it, except we didn't have any knives or guns or anything. So we got all, like, caveman on him. And <laughs> it was sticks and stones. And and after we killed this thing, we're like, yeah, we had a trophy. This thing was, you know, it's as tall as me now, but it was considerably taller than me at eight years old. So we, we bring this thing back. And it turns out my aunt was a really good cook, and she'd won cooking competitions for southern foods and stuff. And so... I don't know whose idea it was, but one thing led to another, and next thing I know, we've skinned the snake, cleaned it up, and, and my aunt had, had cut the snake up, and, and we're f- we, we had fried snake, and it looked like a, a perverse Norman Rockwell picture, you know, the family sitting down for <laughs> Christmas dinner of fried rattlesnake. <laughs> So I've kind of grown up not, not being a real big fan of snakes. You know, I'll, I'll eat them, but you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the type to have a snake as a pet. When I come to a verse like this, I'm kind of like, what the heck? What is Jesus getting at? Well, I want to tell you what Jesus is getting at. Nicodemus is a, is a, a Pharisee. He would have known what Jesus was talking about because he probably had the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, memorized. It was a story... Again, that takes place during the Exodus. We've talked a lot about the Exodus lately, but you can find this in Numbers chapter 21. But here, here's the deal. The Israelites are, are traveling from slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land, and it's taking a real long time. It should have only taken them a few months, but God has them out there in the wilderness for 40 years. And I said two weeks ago that, that God actually explains his thinking behind this. He says, I led you through the wilderness these 40 years to humble you, to test you, to see what was in your heart, that you would learn... That man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God wanted them to form their identity as a people, not around some kind of political philosophy or what the other nations were, but that they would be identified by their relationship with God. And so God does all these miraculous things. If you read about it, it's, it's crazy. God leads them with this, this pillar of fire at night for 40 years. Think about that. You're, you're just following this, this pillar of fire. It's a cloud of glory during the day God feeds them with manna this fresh baked angel bread that that appears on the ground every day and they just gather that up and eat it and and then not only that they have this miraculous provision like all their shoes hold up all their clothes hold up for 40 years and it's amazing and yet living in the miraculous provision of God they kind of got a little too familiar with it Eh, manna And they start complaining. They're like, oh, man, I don't want to eat any more manna cereal, manna pancakes, manna enchiladas. I am sick of manna. I I want to go back to Egypt because at least back in Egypt, man, we had garlic and onions and Tony's and and (laughs) Louisiana translation. (laughs) They're like, oh, God, did you lead us out here in the wilderness to, to kill us? I mean, we're dying here. And so God finally was like, I can't believe you people. I've given you my plan. I'm providing from you. You, You're taken care of, and it's still not good enough. And so they murmured and complained. So finally God's like, okay, that's the way you want it. He sends snakes into their camp. And uh, these snakes start biting people and all of a sudden they change their tone very quickly like, oh, <laughs> we, we do like manna. <laughs> we love the wilderness. It's great. Uh, can we have it without the snakes? And they, so they start, start talking to Moses They're like, Moses, can you please go ask God to, to do something about the snakes? And so what does God say? He says to Moses, he says, I want you to create the image of a snake and put it on a pole and have everybody look at it. And as soon as they look on it, they'll be healed. If you've seen like medical organizations, you may not know this, you, you, if you've ever wondered, what's the pole with the snake around it, what's that got? It? That's where it comes from. And so, uh, so Moses does that, and all the people that look upon it are healed. And so that's the context. So Jesus, before we get to John 3:16, Jesus is saying, "As the, the serpent was lifted up on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up." What is Jesus getting at? He's getting at the crucifixion. He's pointing forward. One day, I'm going to be lifted up in front of all humankind. One day, just like that serpent in the wilderness, I'm going to take the judgment that was coming, the judgment that they were were in. I'm going to take that upon myself on the cross. And anyone who looks to me and trusts me with their life will be saved, will find healing, will find a new life. Now, I want to say something here real quick about eternal life. John 3.16 is one of the most used scriptures in evangelical Christianity. And I, our, our church, I call us evangelical. Um, we believe in sharing the good news with people. We believe we want people to know Jesus and follow him. But one of the problems with John 3.16 is a lot of people take that term eternal life. And what they really mean by it is eternal destination. Jesus didn't mean eternal destination here. I mean, does Jesus talk about heaven or hell here? No. no. Actually, when he asked Peter to follow him and the other disciples, he didn't say, follow me, and you'll get to go to heaven when you die. (laughs) He said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus is actually talking about a kind of life that we can begin to experience right now. Now, sure, it continues to eternity, but Jesus was not about eternity. He was about now. It's a different kind of life. It's God's kind of life, and if you look to me and trust me with your life, my spirit will we'll move inside you and you're going to experience life the way it was intended to be experienced i mean ha- think of peter for a second jesus tells peter follow me and i'll make you a, a fisherman what if peter had followed you Je- you know left his nets and his 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 fishing business and he follows jesus for three or four weeks and he's like wow okay i'm going back to fishing now and then somebody comes up to peter later and is like wait i thought you were following Jesus uh, that jesus said follow me and you you were following him oh yeah i did it was the best month of my life was that what jesus was getting at with peter he wasn't like jesus follow uh, peter follow me for a few weeks no follow me today and continue to follow me wherever i'm going that's kind of what jesus is getting at here eternal life isn't just about your destination jesus Speaks very little about eternal destinations, no matter how much we major on it in the church. He speaks a whole lot about experiencing the kingdom of God right now, right where you're at, living the life that he intended you to live that's based around him and what he's doing. And see, this is the problem. I think so often we, we major on heaven or hell in, the, in an eternal sense. And so we, we fail to see that heaven and hell, it's actually conditions that you can experience right here on earth you can actually begin experiencing heaven or hell right now to, to some extent. I think a great example, I've, I've shared this story before here, but most of y'all weren't here last time I shared it, so I'm going to recycle it. But uh, when I was growing up, we used to go see my grandmother in Dallas, Texas. And every time we were there, we'd go across town to, to, to see this lady Gertrude. And Gertrude was this African-American lady who was... Uh, a, a maid for my grandmother when my, my dad and my uncle were growing up. And I remember as a kid going to see her, I always wondered, like, why do we always go see her? But it was, it was funny when we'd go see her. It was like she's just like the sweetest, joy, joyful person we'd ever come around. And it was contagious. And you kind of felt like as soon as you left there, you, 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 you kind of felt a lift. Like, man, I've, I've, I've been around someone... Really loves Jesus and, and you know if you consider the civil rights stuff and all the things that were going on and, and that she was just working as a maid it 's like you know she had plenty of reasons where she could probably have become a victim. She probably could have uh, gotten resentful and angry at her situation. I mean she, when I saw her growing up, she never had much. she had a little bitty house and not a great area of town, but you when you got around her, you really got a sense that she was richer than most people you knew, because Jesus was at the absolute center of her life. I remember even after I didn't, wasn't going there you know as a kid, you know I, I was kind of forced to go over there with my, my parents, but when I got older and, and moved to Dallas, I would go visit her and I remember seeing her in her 80s and, and she would I would just sit there and hear stories from her she'd talk about You know, when Billy Graham was a young guy in his 20s and how she gave him advice, I'm like, go. (laughs) she's like, I told that Billy Graham, you know, do this. I'm like, wow. (laughs) But, you know, the cool thing about Gertrude is I believe she she began she experienced heaven on earth. She was living in a different reality than the reality of of, of most people. And though she could have opted for regular reality, she didn't. What I found out as I grew up is that she used to, when she was cleaning my my, uh, grandmother's house, she would come into my dad's room and she would go over to their beds, my dad and my uncle, and she'd pray over them. Lord, I pray you'd reach them. I pray you'd do a work in their life. When I look at my dad and my uncle, there's really no reason they should have become Christians. I mean, they grew up with a very nominal experience of church. Church was just kind of a social thing. It never got below the surface. They never had a relationship with Jesus. But I really believe part of why they're following God today is because of the prayers of this woman. She was experiencing heaven on earth. Now, when I look at my grandmother across town, and it was quite a contrast, you know, decades before I was born, I don't know all the story, but I just know that there was some unforgiveness that got in her heart. And she held on to that stuff. And, and, and in her later years in life, I mean, heck, even when I was a young child, it, it just it just got worse. You, you, her, her words became poisoned with bitterness and resentment. Bit by bit, she began to push all of her friends away. And in her final years of life, she, she had uh, she just become so isolated, alone, angry. And I remember even telling her sometimes, I love you, grandmother. And she couldn't even answer me back. She couldn't even say, I love you, to her own grandkids. That's hell on earth. Now, I do believe, you know, the last couple of years of her life, she, she was able to, to turn the corner a bit. And she was able to, to uh, a- a- accept Jesus. But, but the sad thing is, how much of her life did she waste because she loved the darkness rather than the light? Now, that may sound harsh. Love and darkness, that, I mean, is that, that, that sounds like occult. But, you know, it, it's really as simple as, do you love Jesus more than your justification to walk in unforgiveness. You know the reality is. I think sometimes we become so attached to sins in our lives. Especially things like unforgiveness and resentment. And they, they, they become a part of our identity. We can't, we can't even imagine a world without unforgiveness. It's, it's the water we swim in now. It's, it's who I am. I can't let this go. You know what Jesus says here? I, I love this. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world. We see a lot of people in our world that come to judge, don't they? A lot of people who are so-called Christians. I mean, my heart breaks when I see, (laughs) it doesn't break, it gets angry at these people that go to these funerals of people in the armed forces and they hold up signs, you know, God hates America. God hates you very much. God hates this group or that group. That's not what Jesus came doing. Jesus didn't come to say, you bunch of losers, you're, you're, you're getting it wrong, you're, you're stuck in your sins, why, why are you doing that? No, Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. Jesus goes on to say, you know what judgment is? The judgment is that the lights come into the world and people love darkness more than they love light. That's, that's all the judgment. Because the reality is, we're already living in a world that's, that's experiencing the judgment of sin. I mean, look around. I saw this thing on the internet uh, uh, that somebody sent me that was a, uh, a brief documentary by a woman who had been in the adult film industry. And she began to... She, she had got out of it, became a Christian, and she began to expose some of the stuff that goes on beyond, behind the scenes. And it was, it, it was revolting. It, was, it made me nauseous. Because there's the, the stuff that you might see if you get exposed to pornography... And you might think one thing, but when you see what goes on beyond those pictures, beyond those videos, it's, a, it's an industry that seeks to enslave people. People who were just looking for a quick buck because they, they, they were trying to get through college and all of a sudden they get, they get sucked into a world that's every bit as much about human trafficking as anything. And they're cons- consistently sexually abused over and over and you can tell these people don't want to be there. That's the effects of sin in our world. It's not just the producers. It's those who consume it. It's what it does to us. It's not just pornography. It's, it's greed. I mean, look at all the things going on with the economy of the world. You know, a lot of it just goes to a handful of people who were doing evil things for their own gain. They were just, we're going to do all kinds of things and get away with it as long as we can. And who cares if the rest of the world goes down the toilet? It's the effects of sin. We see it everywhere. And Jesus is saying, I stepped into this world, this world in which everything is screwed up for you. Every relationship, the junk on the inside of your life, the government, all this stuff is a mess. It's evil. It's broken. And I've taken all that upon myself. Jesus on the cross exhausted the full force of evil and sin that, is from, that had been accumulated in all the world Upon himself. Judgment then. The only judgment that remains. Is if we refuse to look to Jesus. That's the only judgment that remains. Jesus has already paid away for us to get out of the judgment. He's already taken everything that that, that screwed up in our lives. The only way that we get judged is if we turn our noses up at it. I'm sure there were people back in that story of Moses and the serpent on the, on, on the pole. I'm sure there were people that when Moses says, okay, God's provided a way for you to get healed. There were probably some people that said, man, I don't want anything to do with that God. I can't believe it. I can't believe we're out in the desert. I can't believe we're having to eat man all the time. I want to, I, I can't, I, I wanted to build a house. I wanted to have a family and we're just being dragged around. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that guy. And they refused to look. <laughs> it sounds silly, but they refused See, what Jesus did, it requires a response. It requires, it's not just enough that Jesus went on the cross. It requires us to look to Him and to trust our lives to who He is and what He's done. So today, I just want to end with two questions. Question number one is Have you ever done that before? Have you ever surrendered yourself to Jesus? Have you ever looked to Him and said, God, I thank you that all the judgment, all the screwed up things within me, that you took them upon yourself. And have you ever trusted Him with that? And the second question I want to say is if you've done that, are you still doing that? (laughs) See, I think a lot of times, the problem with John 3.16, the way it's used in, our, in churches a lot, is people say, oh, yeah, I heard John 3.16, and I went up and said the sinner's prayer back in 1995 at a Billy Graham crusade. I'm in. <laughs> That's not what Jesus was getting at. <laughs> Jesus wasn't getting, you know, that, that'd be kind of the equivalent of carrying around your birth certificate all the time. I mean, how many people have a copy of your birth certificate on you this morning? No. <laughs> You know, I, I was born in Dallas, Texas back in 1972, and I'm sure if, if I needed it, I could find a copy of my birth certificate. The important thing is not so much that I was born, but that I'm still alive. <laughs> that means a lot more to me. If you need proof that I was born, okay, yeah, I can find that. But the important thing is, is that I'm still alive today. And see, Jesus, he's not calling us to just give, get the right answer on a test. I think a lot of people think that someday when we die, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to meet Peter, St. Peter at the pearly gates. And Peter's going to say, what are your thoughts of John 3, 16? Oh, yeah, I believe that one. And, and, and I know the right answers. That's not what Jesus is getting at. When he says, believe in me, he's not saying have the right doctrine, <laughs> have the right denomination or have the right answers on a test. He's saying, trust your life to me. You give up that darkness and embrace me, the light. Now, I just want to say something, a word of compassion in here. I know some of you in here, you, you got unforgiveness, and there's probably very justifiable reasons for it. I, as a pastor, sometimes after, after a week goes by and hearing stories from people that are just going through things and hearing stories about their past, I just, my heart is broken I can't believe some of the things that people have, have experienced, abuse, sexual abuse. Uh, it breaks my heart, and, and 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 I think in one way, you're justified to hold your unforgiveness. I get that you you've got a reason to you 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 weren't trying to participate in sin. You were sending it. I get that. But you know, if you hold on to your unforgiveness, it doesn't it doesn't hurt the one who victimized you. It just destroys you. And you get re victimized over and over again. And Jesus, He's saying today, can, can you let go of that? No matter how much justification you have of it, can you trust me to be the king of that? Can you let go? See, that's what it means. That's what Jesus is getting at here. You look to me, you leave that darkness alone. You give it to me, and I take you with open arms. Just like that song we sang this morning, oh, how great
0: is the love of God.
1: This morning, I want to ask you to stand, and we're going to, we're going to close with a moment of prayer.
0: You came down from heaven To show is love.